interesting is when we initially started the company, a big part of our thesis was, we, you know, we were planning to disrupt a lot of the large data companies that we had all worked for. If you want to drastically improve your business, learn proven growth strategies, and generate sustained results for your organization, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Innovation Junkies Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Innovation Junkies Podcast. My name's Jeff Standridge. And this is Jeff Amarine. Glad to be back. Yeah, the Jeffs are back together again. <laughs> it's almost like hey, uh, there, right? That's right. That's right. Hey, uh, let's talk about our, our guest this morning. Uh, today, we've got Chandis Quill, and she serves as the Chief Strategy and Development Officer at Adstra, uh, bringing nearly 20 years of experience in the marketing services space. There at Adstra, she's responsible for uh, uh, guiding the growth and profitability of the identi identity and data business from uh, both an organic and inorganic perspective. Uh, she has been the chief alliances officer at Axiom, which is where we cross paths for a short period of time. She's been in virtually all of the name brand data companies from Merkel to Experian, all in senior roles. Chandice, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. Really happy to be here with you guys. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great to have you. And you're in you're in sunny California, Orange Beach area, uh, Orange uh, County area, rather. Yes. Right near the beach. Correct. Yeah. Beautiful day here yeah. today. <laughs> and I'm sure that yeah, I'm sure the weather's horrible and it's. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to complain about the weather a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So that's actually a good segue for one of the ways we like to get started on these podcasts is, is what we call a random musing. And, and so this one, which is uncomfortable for some of us of a certain age, is what is your favorite spring break memory? What do you think, Dennis? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, well, I'm old enough to have plenty of memories, I guess. A matter of picking one. Um, being that I'm in, you know, the Southern California area, when I was younger in college and, and um even high school, the big spring break place will date me a bit. It was Palm Springs. You probably heard mm. it was either if you were on the East Coast, you went to Florida. And if you're on the West Coast, you went to Palm Springs. So we were fortunate enough to be within driving distance and um, lots of good memories and fun to be had there in, in Palm Springs. Um, but more recently, I would say the Caribbean. Love the Caribbean. One of my favorite places. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Jeff, what about you? Well, I, I'm old enough to to uh, forget most of my spring break memories. Um, you know, growing up, we, we didn't have spring break. I mean, when I was growing up at home, spring break was, you know, particularly as a teenager, was just an opportunity to work more and save some money for, you know, whatever we wanted to do, whether put it in our vehicle or whatever. So as a family, we never took a spring break trip, so to speak, until I was an adult and started having kids. And then, you know, it was an expectation because all their friends were going on spring break trips. Um, but even in college, I never took a spring break trip because I, I, I was one of those guys who crammed a four-year degree into almost six years because I worked full-time all the way through college. But right before, and this is pitiful. I mean, this is really pitiful, right? Right before I graduated college in that second uh, senior year, um, 
I, uh, I took a spring, <laughs> a spring break trip by myself. <laughs> so I went it's to Cancun. Crazy. I went to Cancun on a spring break trip by myself, no other people with me, uh, which I guess is the definition of by myself. And, uh, and so that's probably my most memorable, uh, and simultaneously the most pitiful spring break story ever told. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, I, I, I could probably give you a, a run for your money on that because back in the, from 80 to 84, I was at the Naval Academy and, I don't remember spring break being a thing. I mean, I guess if you're incarcerated, kind of like we were for four years there, anytime you got out, it, it felt like spring break. But there is one trip that was, uh, it was actually during what I think we call dead week rather than a spring break, but it was kind of spring break like. And we flew on, uh, it was called the People's Express for $69 round trip. It was myself and my, my, now, my now wife. At that time, she was my fiance. We flew down there $69 from Annapolis to Melbourne, Florida, and we rented a car and we stayed for an entire week in flea bag hotels and shared $3.99 all you could eat, really terrible uh, Italian food buffets to save money. And I think that whole trip cost us about 300 bucks for a week <laughs> in Florida. Uh, and, it, and it's, you know, I could probably write a book about that week. And it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't a typical kind of crazy other than we did it on very few dollars that was back when gas was you know less than a dollar a gallon oh oh yeah yeah thank you yeah. for that <laughs> yeah no I no problem man no problem um let's hop into the meat of what we want to talk about today Chenis I've got a question to kind of kick things off you you have moved uh if in very senior roles across a number of very uh what I would consider very large organizations uh and and so I'd like to talk about your perspective on leadership, particularly when you move into a new role and you inherit an organization that pre-existed, how do you go about kind of assessing that organization and beginning to kind of put your thumbprint, leadership thumbprint on that organization? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, I have been really fortunate to have worked in a number of the large data companies. And I think probably one point to make before I answer your direct question is, you know, the leadership that I worked for was incredible. So I was mm. really fortunate to have, um, you know, had really good leaders that I was able to learn from and, and support me. And so, you know, that's always um, an important part of, I think, you know, anybody's journey. But mm -hmm. to answer your question, one of the things that I found to work really well is just to spend that first amount of time, whatever time you can take, um, just talking to a variety of people and listening. Um, mm. And I know that sounds pretty basic, but it, it works so well. Um, you know, understanding kind of everyone's perspective, what's working, what's not working, um, getting kind of the lay of the land and multiple inputs for not only your direct team, but your colleagues and, and you know, the, the senior leadership above you too and what their expectations are. And then from there, you know, build kind of that, that plan and that roadmap because it, the themes come, you know, come up and, and are identified pretty, pretty well from having those conversations. Yeah. And that first period of time for you, is that a specific period of time? Is that, is that a month? Is that two weeks? Is that six weeks? What, what, what do you usually try to do, uh, you know, when you're acclimating yourself to a new organization that you're now responsible for leading? 
Yeah, and no, um, I would say a good month it takes, but, you know, to do a lot of those meet and greets and phone calls, um, meetings back when we could meet in person. Um, so I could, the good first 30 days, you know, I feel like, and that's usually about the amount of time that you have. I mean, sometimes you land in a, in a place where, you know, maybe there's something going on where you've got to act more quickly, but generally speaking, I think organizations kind of give people, you know, that time to, to assess and, and learn and, um, and then, you know, come out of the gate with a strong plan. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a follow-up on that. How do sometimes when you take over a new organization like that uh, and you're having conversations at varying different levels, kind of taking deep dives with people, how do you, how do you disarm people in a way that they're not guarded and that they're willing to really give you the, the, the brutal honesty about the situation? What, what have been your techniques in that regard? Yeah, I, I think um, it's how you approach the initial conversation. You know, you, you say, you know, here's what I've done here, you know, what my role is at this, in this team, in this organization, but really want to understand from you what, you know, what, what's been happening. Um, you know, what is your perspective? I think just, making sure that people know you're truly there to learn from them that you, you know, you don't know everything. You may have a lot of experience and outside insight that will be helpful for the organization, but you certainly don't know the organization that well. You don't know how things get done. You don't know how people, you know, feel about different um, initiatives or, or leaders. So I found that people are there, if you really show an interest in listening and understanding, people are pretty, pretty forthright, sometimes to the point where you're like, oh, boy, this, this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> or, or I wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Or, okay, we won't repeat uh, that. We'll just, you know, park that over here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you talked about, you know, coming out with a strong plan. How, how do you then go about kind of rolling out that plan and, and getting you know, support and buy-in for that plan once you've done your information gathering? Because again, you know, you're theoretically, you're 30, 45, maybe 60 days into to your role and you've now got a plan to roll out based upon what you've heard, what you've seen and what you've experienced in other organizations. How do you go about getting people kind of in the boat with you in that regard? You know, what I've done is started with the kind of immediate, um, the team underneath me, you know, my direct reports, I think it's really important to, you know, not go off and create a plan in isolation, but, you know, have your thoughts kind of draft something up. And then what I do is kind of one-on-one -on -one with my direct reports, get their feedback and input. So you kind of get buy-in at the same time. Um, and sometimes there's, you know, great ideas and additions or, or challenges that they identify that you that you wouldn't because you're not as familiar with, you know, the team or the organization you're new. Um, so I start with that and then kind of refine the plan, obviously making sure that it's aligned with the rest of the organization and expectations from above too. And then once that's solidified and I know I have the, uh, you know, the direct report, the management team behind the plan, then begin to roll it out to the rest of the, the group. So your, your role with, uh, with Adstra, and, and you might uh, just tell us a little bit about Adstra, our listeners, just a little bit about Adstra, but your role is strategy and development. Give us, give us an idea of kind of what, what your day-to-day -day looks like there in that role as strategy and development officer. 
Yeah, there's um, kind of two parts to my my role and kind of my day to day activity. The first one is um, M and A. So we, you know, plan to grow organically and inorganically. And on the inorganic side, it would be through you know acquiring other companies that um, match what we're trying to do and where we're going with our roadmap. So I spend a ton of time uh, meeting other companies. Um, understanding their capabilities, kind of seeing where they are with their strategy and long-term plans. You know, is it a company that you know, would be interested in selling? Um, what ends up happening quite a bit is a lot of those conversations aren't a fit from an acquisition perspective, but they're a great fit for us from a commercial partnership. Mm. So then I work a lot with the um, indirect, we call it indirect sales team, partner team, and, and transitioning some opportunities to them to pursue from a commercial relationship. And, and then sometimes those commercial relationships are a good foundation for an acquisition with that company later down the road. So I spend a lot of time with a variety of companies, reading a lot around, you know, different parts of the industry and, and trying to find companies that we might be interested in. So that's one. And then on the um, organic side, um, when we identify, you know, whether it be a new vertical or a new area that we want to begin to explore for growth, I get involved in doing that. So if, um, you know, it's a new vertical or industry, I'll work on, um, you know, kind of the opportunity, how our products and services will play within that industry. What do we need to do in order to um, tackle that industry in terms of our go to market and our resources, that kind of thing. Um, a good example would be then for something I've been working on this last year is I know you're familiar with is international expansion. So mm -hmm. that's something I've been spending quite a bit of my, my time on over the last 12 months. Very good. Yeah, actually, uh, now Adstra went through a rebranding, what, a couple of years ago, uh, formerly ALC, formerly American List Council, I believe. So I, I had the opportunity to work with uh, the precursor to Adstra when I was leading the uh, what they what we used to call the broker reseller area uh, at Axiom years ago, yeah. when uh, and uh, and so tell us tell us a little bit about that transformation over the course of the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it, that's been a very interesting. Um, this has been a really interesting journey for me in my career. Um, what so we were you know a number of us had had worked together at various of these large data companies in the past, um, and I think there was a common desire to go and start a data and identity company that was really built for the 21st century marketers. Um, as you, you, you know, a lot of the, the older kind of well-established data companies, you know, they've had to move from kind of direct mail to, and then it was email and then digital. And that's, that's a tough, it's been a tough transformation for a lot of those companies. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we were fortunate to, with private equity sponsorship, have a thesis for what we wanted to create. Um, and ALC was the platform company that, you know, kind of start, started the business mm -hmm. off of. Mm -hmm. And the reason we picked ALC was they had amazing and do have amazing brand clients, um, very, very strong uh, reputation and, and um, relationships with their clients. They had uh, very good data assets um, that created a good foundation to, to build what now is an enterprise identity platform, which I can talk about later, but good data assets. And they also had some interesting digital capabilities 
um, that were kind of unique in the market, but they hadn't been able to kind of put that all together in a way that, um, you know, I think we've been able to just from having the vision and understanding where we were going. Um, and so now what we've done, and it's been an interesting three-year journey, but what we've done is built um, a company that we still have the core kind of a ALC offerings, if you will, right? We still do um, customer acquisition and data monetization for our clients. But in addition to that, now we've built an identity and data platform that allows marketers to take any form of identity, send it to us. We can assign that a persistent ID to that person. So identify that as an individual, sign a persistent ID and return any other form of identity or attributes needed for that marketer to perform insights, targeting, measurement, you know, whatever their, their marketing needs are. So. Very good. What were the main so challenges? What were the main challenges of making that, you know, we see, we see in organizations, sometimes there's this resistance between sort of incremental organizational efficiency and serving the customers and then really a big transformation. What were some of the challenges you had to work your way through to, to make all that happen over the last three years? Yeah, I mean, resistance to change is always, a, you know, a challenge anywhere you go back to the kind of the beginning of the conversation. And I think here, um, that was one of the bigger challenges, just because um, the, the ALC, and then we rebranded to Astra, but ALC was a, um, you know, 40 year old um, company that had been run by the founder for all those years and had a very distinct you know culture and and way to do business and it had been very successful i mean it was a, a great company under his leadership um but you know from and there were a lot of employees had been there quite a long time um and so when you bring in you know new leadership with this you know completely different i would say in a way um, vision and strategy, it takes a while to get, you know, your head around that and, and to, you know, trust in that and, and see the results. And so winning people over through action and consistency over that first year was probably the biggest challenge, to be honest. I mean, it wasn't building the new capabilities. That was the easy part, actually. Yeah. It's really about moving the hearts and minds of the, you know, employees that have been there a long time. You know, Jeff, Jeff and I have both spent some time in and out of working with private equity and, and venture capital and, and, uh, and advising, uh, uh, private equity firms in that regard and, and working directly with companies like yours. And so one of the things when we started innovation junkie a few years ago was to help organizations focus on building sustained strategic growth. And I know that's something that's part of your, your role now. How do you go about uh, in, in your role as chief development and strategy officer or strategy and development officer, how do you go about helping the organization craft that strategic growth plan? And then, and then the follow-up question is going to be, and how do you monitor and, and, and make sure that the organization's progressing against the milestones in that regard? Because as you know, private equity is a different world as it relates to expectations and, and uh, hitting of milestones and, and some of those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I like that. It's a faster paced, you know, with a, kind of a set period of time in which to, to you know, have the results, achieve the results. Um, 
So, you know, I work very closely with our CEO. Um, and when we first landed into uh, the company, you know, we had a very clear three-year plan. Um, and, you know, a lot of what we had to do in the first year was, I would almost call it basic blocking and tackling to mm -hmm. start to move the organization and set up the organization such that as we were in parallel building the new capabilities, we were, you know, looking at improving and enhancing the HR systems. We were, you know, uh, making sure that our financial metrics and systems and, and people were, um, you know, put in place such that we could measure the results. Um, and then also really important our go to market. We spent quite a bit the first year, you know, assessing the current talent, um, putting people in the right roles, hiring some new people um, and getting a lot of that in place. Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of year one. It was a lot of rolling up the sleeves and, and just digging in and, and getting those things um, moving. And then in parallel, we were building a new um, capability and a new set of offerings. And so as we came into year two, we really started to get um, more focused on go to market, selling, marketing, those things. And that's, you know, kind of when the rebranding came in. And, um, and then this last year, you know, I would say towards the end of the middle of the second year and into this last third year, we've just started to see now the growth. So now there's another, what we stumbled on is that what we had built in our initial thesis uh, was working, but, but there was a pivot that we made recently mm. uh, because we now see an even bigger opportunity. So now we're looking at another, you know, plan for the next three years that's, a kind of a revised enhanced um, thesis for how we will grow the company. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, when we work with our clients, we, we tell them that, you know, three years is about the, the length of time that organizations today, particularly if they're enabled with any form of technology, about three years is the length of a strategic, a strategic plan or a strategic growth plan, because, uh, you know, you, you never know when another opportunity is going to present itself that doesn't fit within the strategic plan you developed three years ago uh, that mm -hmm. that creates an opportunity for you, you to pivot. So talk, talk a little more about your perspective in that regard. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think, you know, it, it's kind of 12 month, very specific plans within a three year, you know, view, right? Um, and people like to know, I think it's important for employees to know that there's not just a short term, we're just going to do these things this year. I mean, they, I think that there's some kind of, um, you know, comfort and, and um, trust that is built when they see that there's a bigger picture. Um, so I agree with you on that. Um, but yeah, what was interesting is when we initially started the company, a big part of our thesis was, we, you know, we were planning to disrupt a lot of the large data companies that we had all worked for because there's some, you know, big flaws there. I mean, data, third-party data isn't being used as much in digital advertising as it should be. And there's a number of obstacles to that and mm -hmm. barriers that we wanted to break down. So it was kind of fun being somebody who had, you know, had experience, a lot of us had experience in these bigger companies. Now we had kind of the freedom to, to build something, um, not as a startup, but, you know, based on a, a foundation of a, a good business. And, you know, what we found, we knew that data, you know, attributes about people was going to be really important. And that's the part we really wanted to disrupt from a lot of the companies we had worked for. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we also knew that we needed this identity um, graph and this identity solution. And what happened is we started selling and we realized that because of more companies doing direct to consumer marketing and selling, COVID accelerated a lot of that, because of digital being, you know, outgrowing all the other channels and because of privacy and, and concerns around the use of data, our identity part of our platform was the, was the thing that really gravitated and was addressing the need in the market. And so we pivoted to, you know, let's really focus on identity first and solve mm -hmm. that problem for clients. And then along with that comes the additional data clients need to, to do their marketing. So that was, it sounds maybe a bit subtle, but it was a pivot. I mean, it was something where we had to make a conscious effort to think about changing our go-to-market, thinking about investing a little more in certain parts of our platform, you know, not, not focus so much on, you know, collecting more data, but really this platform that can be portable and put behind a, a firewall of a client so they can run all these operations themselves. Um, those were, those were big product and go to market changes and adjustments we made. You know, speaking of some of that, how, how are you thinking about privacy and GDPR and all these emerging standards and whatnot? And how has that been a challenge to implementing your current strategy? So in the kind of data advertising marketing space, privacy uh, has always been a big part of you know, the, the business, um, whether it's mandated privacy policies and things that need to be adhered to, or I think a lot of the white hat companies in the industry, um, you know, put the, put the, themselves in a situation where they're always thinking ahead of what needs to be done. So I think in general, you know, good reputable companies have always thought about privacy um, and built their products and services around you know, that, um, but to your point, it has gotten a lot more, um, you know, there's a lot more concerns over privacy. There's a lot more regulation around privacy now. Um, and so having kind of privacy by design built into your product development process is one thing. Um, we have an amazing chief privacy officer that's, you know, focused on making sure that we think things through from um, you know, a, a regulatory perspective, a consumer's perspective, and then just, you know, business, what's the right thing to do for the business. Um, and then when we took a look at what we were building to help clients address their concerns over privacy, that's where we built a technology platform that I mentioned earlier could be installed all of our data and services can be installed behind the client's firewall rather than in the, in the traditional method of sending data out, um, you know, to get uh, enhanced or, you know, additional data um, solutions. Now we can put this platform, and this is the nice thing with technology and, and the advances in that, we can put the platform behind the client's firewall and they never have to send their data out. And that's a unique and innovative way we're handling um, making the privacy concerns, um, you know, addressing the privacy concerns of our clients, in addition to just how we, you know, source our data and the solutions we offer. So. So it just occurred to me, 
and, and unless some of these people have moved and perhaps they have, and, uh, you know, Astra's technically based in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You're on the West, you're on the West coast uh, in California. Uh, we just talked a few moments ago about a delivery leader who's here in Conway, uh, your CEO and chief human resource person, they're Chicago area people. And unless mm-hmm. he's moved, your, your, your chief data guy was in Austin last I heard. Um, so, so talk a little bit about, is, is that all still the case and, and where's the majority of your workforce and talk a little bit about this virtual workforce, uh, could open up another can of worms here for us to explore. Yeah, and isn't that, you know, the case for everyone? Um, I have to say on a personal note, just before I answer your question, I'm so happy that, you know, working remotely has now become a legit thing (laughs) because this office that I'm sitting in has been my office for 11, 12 years. Um, I I worked remotely once I left Experian and then I was either on a plane or, you know, out of the country or whatever. Um, But now, and, you know, I was it was always kind of like, oh, I work remotely, but it's not something you really announce to everyone. Now everyone's remote and uh, people understand that you can really actually get a lot done and, and so forth. So personally happy that the world has come around to remote working. Um, but to answer your question, I think, you know, a couple of dynamics. One, a lot of the people that you just mentioned um, in, in our you know, management team have worked together before. So, uh-huh. Uh, we've spent a lot of time together, you know, whether it be in person or remotely, but there's just already a really well-established working relationship. I think that helps a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Two, yes, a lot of the client base was um, and is out of our Princeton location. And so, you know, we all spent a tremendous amount of time there. That first year I was talking about where we're trying to, you know, uh, put together, you know, and, and communicate to the employees where we're going with a company and why it's such a great opportunity and why it means more growth and opportunity for them as individuals. We all spent a ton of time in Princeton. Um, so we would have our management time, we would spend time with the employees. Um, and so there was, a, you know, an investment in, in travel and so forth there to establish those relationships and and teams and so forth. Um, then, of course, COVID hit, and a lot of the people who were used to working in the office had to get adjusted to working remotely. And I think now, you know, some kind of a hybrid model will be what will continue in the future. And and so, how many employees does Astra have today? About 180. And where where do they sit predominantly? How are they distributed? Uh, just at a very high level. Functionally or geographically? Geographically. Yeah. So I would say probably, um, you know, well over 50% is is East Coast based. So New Jersey, New York area, Um, you know, probably around uh, 25% because we do have an office up in uh, Northern California is there. And then we have, you know, probably maybe 30% and then like, you know, 20 ish are kind of in various um, states across. We have a small like engineering here in Orange County. Um, So yeah, there's small pockets of groups and then individual talent, you know, based in places that you already mentioned. Very good. Truly a virtual company. Yeah, absolutely. Works though. 
Absolutely. Well, we're talking to the Chief uh, Strategy and Development Officer of Adstra, Chandice Quill. Chandice, it's been great having you with us today. We appreciate you for taking the time to spend with us. Yeah, thank you. This is really fun. And I feel like I got to know you guys a little bit as well. So I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. This has been another episode of the Innovation Junkies podcast. Thanks for joining. See you next time. Feedback from listeners like you helps us create outstanding content. So if you like this episode, be sure to rate us or leave a review. Also, don't forget to subscribe to get the latest growth and innovation strategies. Thanks for tuning in to the Innovation Junkies podcast.